and the girls who worked at the plant would glow and sparkle after a day's work. This to us is terrifying. You shouldn't be glowing with radioactive light and be excited about it. But this didn't trouble the girls because they didn't know any different. It made them feel like movie stars, frankly, literally glowing when they would go out at night. Welcome to A Popular History of Unpopular Things, a podcast that makes history more fun and accessible. Now my kind of history is the unpopular stuff. Disease, death, and destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. So today, we're going to talk about the Radium Girls. Now back in the early 20th century, that's the 1900s, young women were employed to work in factories, painting the dials and numbers on watches, clocks, stuff like that. And the products were called luminous because they glowed in the dark. So luminous watches, right? It was all the rage. But what made them glow in the dark was radium. Now radium, if you don't already know or can figure out from the name, is a naturally occurring radioactive metal. The kind of stuff, you know, you don't want to touch or be near because the alpha, beta, and gamma radiation it produces will kill you. We'll get into that in more detail later. But these girls were hired to use paint with radium in it to help the watches glow at night, which was a desirable luxury on the market, but something also really useful in a military setting. And unfortunately for those young women, the technique they were taught to get the brushes nice and sharp was something called lip pointing. They would sharpen the brush in their mouths, dip it in radioactive paint, and then use it. And when the brush hardens, they would repeat the process. So they were readily ingesting radioactive radium, small quantities at a time, but regularly enough so that each girl who worked as a dial painter was doomed to a horrible, painful, irreversible death. So today, we'll take a look at the history that explains why these girls were working in radium paint factories. Why radium? How does that work? And why were girls hired to paint watches? What was life like for these young women? After looking at the historical context, we'll focus on a few women in particular to give you a better sense of what happened here. And finally, we'll recap the after effects. How and why did this process end? And what are the bigger picture ramifications of the radium girls? So let's get started. Now, the beginning of our story here takes place in the days of World War I. The U.S. entered the war in April 1917, and many of our nation's young men were enlisted and sent overseas. But while we were fighting to help out our British, French, and Russian allies over in Europe, there was still work to be done back home. Who would keep the factories going? Producing things needed for the war, like ammunition, guns, and how about stuff used domestically? Well, women stepped up and entered the workforce, taking on jobs that were previously denied to them. Now, a few episodes ago, we learned about H.H. Holmes, and I mentioned that in his day, around the 1890s, women who worked traditionally had jobs like being a secretary or a stenographer. But this changed with World War I. Women were now going into the factories, making more money, and proving to be the real backbone of the U.S. war effort at home. This carried over into other aspects of life, too, like the women's suffrage movement, which was the decades-long movement for women to have the right to vote, which gained real momentum and was ratified as the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution on August 19, 1920. Now, not all factory work was equal. Some jobs were more dangerous than others, and some paid better than others. 
Oh, man, that reminds me. I gotta do an episode one of these days on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. 1911, I think. That was when all these women were locked in the room, unable to leave, but then they were smoking in there, and they accidentally set off a fire, and they all died. It's a good story that explains why we need workplace protections and things like OSHA, right? But that's a story for a different day. Now, there was one growing business in northern New Jersey that seemed too good to be true for these women looking for jobs, and it was a company called the Radium Luminous Materials Corp on 3rd Street in Newark, New Jersey, not far from where I live, and it was hiring young women as watch-style painters. Now, they would paint the numbers and the hands of watches with an almost magical glowing paint, right? And they would be paid for each watch they completed. Some of these girls made more money than they had ever dreamed they would have. Some made more than their parents did and were able to really support their families. But what the girls didn't realize was the paint, which glowed because of the radium inside it, was radioactive. Their jobs, although they paid well and gave them many opportunities they didn't have before, were deadly. Now before we move on, it's really important that we understand what radium is and a basic history of radium and how it's radioactive and stuff like that. So let's do a little bit of science, scientific context. So radium was first discovered in 1898 by Marie and Pierre Curie. You've probably heard of Marie Curie before, right? Now when talking about radium, most people are discussing radium-226, the most stable isotope of radium. For those of you who didn't listen to my Chernobyl episode or just forgot all that complicated science I went over, let's review isotopes for a minute. So you may remember from high school science that each element has a specific number of protons, neutrons, and electrons, right? In fact, the number of protons is what determines the element's atomic number. The first element on the periodic table is hydrogen, so that tells us it has an atomic number of one, which means it has one proton, right? Nice and simple. Radium, for those of you curious by now, has an atomic number of 88, so it has 88 protons. Cool. But what can be different is the number of neutrons. If an element had a different atomic number, if it had a different number of protons, it would be a different element, right? So it's not the protons we're worried about here, it's the neutrons. Because they can have different numbers of neutrons, but still be the same element. That's an isotope. Normally, radium has 138 neutrons. When combined with the protons, so 88, we get our atomic mass, which is 226. So that's why we call it radium-226. The atomic mass is the protons and neutrons added together. So when we think about normal, good old radium, we're thinking about radium-226. But sometimes the number of neutrons can change, I'll go over why in a second, and it changes the stability of the element. Radium actually has 33 different isotopes that we know about, ranging in atomic mass from 202 to 234. And all 33 of those isotopes of radium are radioactive including the original, the OG, radium-226. Now, we're pretty much just going to be talking about radium-226 today, the most stable of the isotopes, which, again, I'll get into in a second. I just find all this stuff really fascinating. So I'm probably just going to call it radium from now on, just nice, simple radium, instead of radium-226 every time. So, Marie and Pierre Curie discovered that radium is produced during the radioactive decay of uranium-238. Now, radioactive decay, so think about like breaking down of radioactive, right? Radioactive decay happens when an element is unstable. That element wants to become stable again. To do that, it needs to get rid of excess energy to become stable, and in the process of doing so, it releases radiation. 
we can't really detect radiation without specific equipment, right? Like, imagine those guys wearing those full-body suits with the little devices that click, right? We, we can't just, we can't smell radiation, right? We need very precise machines and technology to be able to detect when radiation is around us. When an element, like uranium-238, undergoes radioactive decay, in that process, it creates other elements, including our friend, radium. And radium, just like uranium, is radioactive, which means it too is unstable. For radioactive elements that are unstable, they will always have what we call a half-life, not the video game. Half-life is the amount of time it takes for one half of the radioactive isotope to decay. The half-life is constant, okay? It is not affected by things like temperature or the weight of the element or the starting amount of that element you have, none of that. Just time. Sometimes the half-life of a radioactive element will be super, super long, but sometimes it can be really short. It just depends on the isotope. Radium-226, right, the one we're discussing today, is the most stable of the radium isotopes. That does not mean it is stable, because if it were stable, it wouldn't be radioactive. But of all of them, it is the most stable, so it's the one that is often used for things. It also has the longest half-life of 1,600 years, 1,600. What this means in normal people talk is that it takes 1,600 years for the intensity of that radiation coming from radium to decrease as well by, you know, a half. So it stays radioactive for a really long time. But what makes this the most stable is that it takes 1,600 years before it breaks down or releases all that extra energy it's got that makes it radioactive. So when radiation is emitted, okay, it can take three forms, alpha, beta, and gamma radiation. Radioactive material that emits alpha particles can't really penetrate through most things, actually. You can block it by wearing clothing or even, like, a piece of paper. But we're going to come back to alpha radiation in a second. Beta particles can also be blocked by a layer of clothing or a thick layer of something to protect you, but it can penetrate the skin and cause a burn. Gamma particles are generally considered to be the most dangerous ones because they can penetrate a lot more than alpha and beta ones. Gamma rays, and by the way, also x-rays, can penetrate through clothes and stuff. So normally, you'd need to shelter under a few feet of concrete or a few inches of lead to protect you. This is why, if you've ever gotten an x-ray done, they had to drape that heavy lead apron over you, right? And then the people running the test had to leave the room. The lead can stop the radiation from penetrating. Now, small doses, like getting an x-ray done safely, will just pass through your body. You just don't want to be exposed to gamma particles or x-ray all of the time or in massive quantities. But if you had one x-ray done on, like, a broken arm when you were five, you're, you're fine. Don't worry about it. But let's jump back to alpha, though. Alpha particles are usually given off by the heavier radioactive elements, including our friend radium. And though it can be easily blocked by clothing, where it is most dangerous is when it's ingested. If you inhale it, if you swallow it, or if it gets absorbed directly into the bloodstream, it's it's bad. Like, really bad. It can completely destroy living tissue. In fact, alpha particles are the most harmful type of radiation inside the body. They are large, they're in charge, and they will absolutely ruin your insides. So externally, gamma particles are the most dangerous and what we need to worry about. Internally, it's the alpha particles. 
And this is where we get back to our radium girls. Their lip-pointing technique had them regularly, sometimes for years, on daily, ingesting radium. They were putting that stuff directly into their body. And now we know that the alpha particles that came from that radium that they were ingesting were the most dangerous type entering their bodies. Now, the Radium Luminous Materials Corp in Newark wasn't the only dial-painting factory, but it was one of the bigger ones, and it offered these young women new prospects. They could earn good money and support the war effort. Now, Luminous watches were essentially clocks, watches, and other important dials that were painted with this luminous paint, a paint made by combining radium powder, water, an adhesive to help it stick, and zinc sulfide. They found that when the alpha particles emitted from the radium hit the zinc sulfide, it would glow, that pretty green glow, right? Now, the Newark company, including the man who invented the paint, Dr. Sabin von Zachaki, would put this radium paint on the numbers and the hands of these watches so they could be viewed in the dark at night. And they called the paint Undark. The luminous watches got so popular and were so widely used in the U.S. military, too, that the company expanded to an even bigger warehouse in Orange, New Jersey, also not far from me. And eventually, the company changed hands a bit and rebranded itself as the United States Radium Corporation, the USRC. Sounds very official, doesn't it? Now, to get this radium lace paint on the numbers and the hands of the clocks and dials, the young women they hired had to use super fine brushes and paint them all by hand. The best painters could go through dozens upon dozens of these watches a day, and since the girls were paid per piece, they wanted to work fast. But the problem with this undark, luminous paint was that the radium dried out the brushes really quickly and the brush ends would fray a little bit. And this is where the lip-pointing technique came in. They found that by putting the tip of the brush to your lips and rolling it slightly, it helped keep the tip pointed in a way that they could be more precise with their painting. Radium was hard to come by and produce, so every little bit of paint mattered. Their bosses certainly didn't want them to waste any of it. So it was lip dip and paint. Point the brush with your lips, dip it into the mixture, and paint. Over and over. All day. For as long as you worked as a dial painter. Now one woman, Grace Fryer, said she could only paint two numbers on a dial before she needed to lip point and fix the brush. Another, Edna Bowles, had to lip point after every number, sometimes multiple times per number. It's estimated that the dial painters would lip point an average of 250 times per day, which was like ingesting 2 grams of radium paint and 43 micrograms of radioactive alpha particles a day. Now, the radium paint had a relatively low amount of radiation coming from it, but consider that the girls were putting low levels of radioactive materials, including the super dangerous if you consume them alpha particles, into their bodies constantly and consistently. Now, you may be asking at this point, how much did the company know, right? Did people back then know radium was dangerous and radioactive? Was, was it just a thing where people weren't super aware of the long-term consequences at first, like cigarettes? Or did they know that radium was dangerous? Oh, they knew. And they knew the girls were lip-pointing. Yet the companies kind of just let these practices continue, exercising gross negligence that ended up with most of these girls dying in excruciating ways. Vance Chalky, who invented the radium paint, had studied under the Curies in France, so he knew that radium was dangerous. So the men who worked in the lab upstairs producing the paint, they wore lead-lined aprons, and they took all those precautions to prevent themselves from becoming radioactive. 
But unfortunately, the American public was undergoing what I will describe as radium fever. Everyone was obsessed with this new wonder element as a medical cure. There were radium-lined cups that people were encouraged to drink from so their water would be enriched with radium and they'd be cured of all of their ailments. Radium was added to toothpaste, to cosmetics, even food. Now, it's impossible to know if companies were actually putting radium in their products or just taking advantage of the craze with some false advertising, but there's no denying that radium was the hot new thing. Literally, I guess. It was called liquid sunshine, and the fact that it had this ghostly glow was more magical than terrifying at the time. For those of you chronologically challenged, this is way, way before all the nuclear power plant incidents, before we dropped nukes on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, before we knew of the deadly and destructive power of radiation. We knew it was bad for you, but not to the extent we do now, right? At the tail end of World War I, radium was the hot new thing, and the girls who worked at the plant would glow and sparkle after a day's work. This, to us, is terrifying. You shouldn't be glowing with radioactive light and be excited about it. But this didn't trouble the girls because they didn't know any different. It made them feel like movie stars, frankly, literally glowing when they would go out at night. So while scientists familiar with radium knew it was dangerous, a lot of people were quite blasé about it. How can a liquid sunshine be bad for you, right? And this is before the long-term effects were studied. Our radium girls were a big part of the reason why we don't have radium lining our products today. Too much exposure, particularly internally, causes death. It also didn't help that the factory girls were outright told that the radium wasn't dangerous. Now, a really popular book came out in 2017 called The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore. And the author did a really good job of diving deep into this history, putting the girls at the center of all of the research, and making it feel like a good story while also being a well-researched piece. I'll leave a link in the podcast description for those of you interested in reading it. In the book, Kate Moore quotes a conversation the girls had with their floor supervisor. Quote, The very first thing we asked was, Does this stuff hurt you? And they said, No. Mr. Savoy, the floor manager, said that it wasn't dangerous and that we didn't need to be afraid. After all, radium was the wonder drug. The girls, if anything, should benefit from their exposure. They soon grew so used to the brushes in their mouths that they stopped even thinking about it. End quote. It was so early in the life of radium in a commercial and industrial setting that there was no conclusive statement on whether or not it was safe to work with. And it's not like the FDA was there making sure it was safe to use before hitting the market. Though the FDA was formed before this, in 1906 properly, it didn't regulate radium on the market until after the radium girls brought its danger to the public spotlight with some lawsuits that they had against their former employers as they were dying of radiation poisoning. But again, those in the know knew that radium was dangerous. Van Suchaki is quoted in 1921 as saying, Only by taking the greatest precautions could one handle radium. But because the physical quantity of radium in the paint was so small, they assumed it was safe, so the girls were not afforded the same protective equipment that the men in the lab upstairs were given. I think I'll spare you all my rant on that one, because boy can I go on a rant. But is anyone surprised that the specialists men upstairs were given better treatment and precautions than the workers, women, on the factory floor? Yeah, I think not. Anyway, as new girls were brought into the factory, they were all taught the lit point technique as a way to maximize their productivity. 
Swishing the paintbrush around in water wasted too much paint, so the floor managers didn't typically like them using water cups. In fact, they wouldn't give them any. Rags were given out for a while, too, but again, there were issues with the wasted paint. Lip pointing was just allowed to go on. Out of sight, out of mind. Now, there was one incident when Van Sachaki, the one who came up with the paint and originally owned the factory, walked through the factory floor. Now, according to a lot of the girls, the higher-ups didn't normally walk down on the painting floor. But once, when Van Sachaki saw the girls using the lip-pointing technique, he told a woman named Grace Fryer not to put the paintbrush in her mouth as it would make her sick. But after that moment, the girls were not told to stop. In fact, one woman, Catherine Schaub, suddenly developed pimples one day, which for her was uncharacteristic. She was, you know, beyond the age where that was a new thing for her. Now, other people around Catherine were starting to complain of weird symptoms of things, so just to check, she went to the doctor. And the doctor noticed some weird results in her blood work and asked if she had worked with phosphorus at her factory, as her symptoms mirrored something called phosphorus poisoning, which, of course, alarmed poor Catherine. So the girls, in mass confronted their floor manager about whether or not radium was safe to work with. The manager went to his manager, who brought in a so-called radium specialist, to lecture the girls about how radium isn't dangerous. You know, they didn't actually look into it or put any kind of work into it. They were just like, nah, nah, it's fine, just, it's fine, don't worry about it. Now this did calm all the women down, because as Kate Moore puts in her book, when one of the greatest radium authorities in the world tells you that you have no need to worry, quite simply, you don't. Stay with us. We'll be right back. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. But of course, things got worse for the girls the longer and harder they worked. Let's look at a few in particular to see how ingesting radium on the daily and in taking all of those alpha particles killed them. So I want to talk about some of the girls who worked in the factory and were instrumental in varying ways to bringing to light how dangerous radium is and how corrupt and awful capitalist corporations can be without checks and balances. I want to start with Molly Magia. Her name is actually Amelia, but she went by Molly. And now that I'm thinking about it, because she's Italian, it might be Magia. Anyway, she was one of seven sisters born to Italian immigrants. Three of her sisters also worked as a radium dial painter with Molly. Now, Molly joined the U.S. Radium Corporation, which I'm just going to call the USRC from now on, and she was a really fast and efficient painter. But one day at work, after a couple of years, she started feeling tooth pain, and she figured she just needed a tooth removed, so she went to the dentist and had it taken out. But the pain didn't go away. And over time, the pain actually got worse. It spread to her lower gums and her jaw. She says the pain was almost unbearable, so she went back to the dentist in October 1921. But this time, she went to a different one, a specialist in weird mouth pain. And the dentist diagnosed her with pyorrhea. Pyorrhea, with a P. An inflammatory disease of the gums, because she seemed to have all the symptoms of it. But the problem, though, was that the treatment didn't help, and her pain actually got worse. Worse than that, actually, the pain spread to other parts of her body. She started getting aches and pains in her legs and her hips. Her younger sister, Quinta, who also ended up getting sick and dying, commented that she thought Molly was just coming down with rheumatism, right? Rheumatoid arthritis. But nothing could be done to help Molly. Nurses brought to the house couldn't help. 
The dentist couldn't help, and Molly was just getting worse and worse. In fact, the more the dentist tried to help, the worse it got. Molly's teeth started to fall out on their own. They were literally disintegrating. Her mouth was literally falling apart. They considered maybe it was syphilis, right? She had some of the common symptoms, sores, joint pain, tiredness, but the test for syphilis came back negative. Now this dentist, like the first, also considered phosphorus poisoning, something called fossy jaw, actually, which also mirrored Molly's symptoms. But since Molly didn't work with phosphorus, it couldn't be this. And as the dentist was trying to figure out what was happening, Molly's condition considerably got worse. Her entire lower jaw, the roof of her mouth, and all the way up to her ear was basically one big abscess by now. By May, she had pretty much no teeth. And where the teeth fell out, the holes never healed, instead leaving behind raw red ulcers. Her jaw was in immense pain. When the dentist touched it to assess how painful and sensitive it was, it broke apart at the slightest bit of pressure. He, are you ready for this? Removed her lower jaw by just putting his fingers in her mouth and lifting the bone out. But that didn't stop her condition from worsening either. The infection spread. Necrosis started eating away at the top jawbone, and once the necrosis spread to her neck, it ate through her jugular vein, and she bled out with a river of blood pouring out of what was left of this poor girl's mouth. She was 24 years old. Other girls were starting to come down with similar symptoms, like Irene Rudolph, Helen Quinlan, Hazel Vincent, and some of these girls still worked for the USRC, but others had left years before the symptoms showed up, and that's because of how the alpha particles were attacking the body. Now, what the girls and scientists didn't know at the time was how the radium was affecting their internal organs. Some of the alpha particles would get into the bloodstream, and from there be carried throughout the body. But, like with calcium, it was especially carried into bone tissue. And yes, bone is a tissue. Now, according to the National Library of Medicine, the reason for this is because calcium and radium are chemically similar to each other. So the body kind of absorbs radium the same way it absorbs calcium. But anyway, once the alpha particles are in the bone tissue, it just breaks it all from the inside. This is why the dentist was able to break apart poor Molly's jaw with the slightest of touches. It was literally crumbling from the inside, making them super, super porous and super, super weak. While their bodies were crumbling away from the inside, many of the girls actually lost inches in one or both legs as the bones broke and crushed, and the necrosis would eat away at their soft tissues as well, causing immense physical and psychological pain. And in case there was any doubt, there is no cure for radium poisoning, even today. These girls were doomed to die. Now, years after they quit, when many of the radium girls were on their deathbeds, they fought back against the USRC with lawsuits, trying to get money to recompense their medical bills and families, but also to make it so that radium poisoning was one of the handfuls of occupational diseases covered by workers' comp. The problem, though, was that the symptoms would appear years after exposure, so there was a lot of legal gray area that the USRC tried to exploit to get out of A, paying the girls any money for their troubles, and B, taking any blame or responsibility for the workplace injuries and any future claims. You know, classical corporate America stuff. It's not our fault, you can't sue, good luck. Now let's talk about another radium girl, Grace Fryer, who was instrumental in bringing their plight and their lawsuits into the public eye. Grace Fryer joined the USRC as an 18-year-old in 1917. 
She, like many other young women her age, was compelled to join the war effort, get a good factory job, make some money, maybe find a husband, and just enjoy her life as an independent working woman. She worked for the USRC for three years before moving on to the banking world instead. But two years after leaving her factory job with the USRC, so five years after she had originally started, she was losing her teeth. Her jaw became painful. She actually developed cataracts, too, in her eyes. A doctor examined her and found serious bone decay in her mouth, but didn't know what was causing it. So a lot like Molly, right? Nowadays, it's easier for doctors to be able to see trends in medical records, so it would be easier to catch on that all of these women presenting with strange symptoms worked in the same environment. They did eventually figure it out, but it took a little while longer. Now, in 1925, five years after Grace left the USRC, a doctor started to piece together the idea that it was radium that was causing the issues here. It was a Dr. Martland, and he even developed some tests to test for radiation from the living. Prior to this, you could only really test by using an electrogram on ground-up bones, so, you know, when they were dead. But it didn't take long to discover that the girls who worked at the factory and regularly used lip pointing, ingesting radium in the process, were all radioactive. Every part of them was radioactive. It took another two years, so in 1927, to find a lawyer who was willing to go up against the USRC, but Grace Fryer found one. So Grace joined up with four other dial painters to sue. Quinta McDonald and Albina Larice, who, by the way, were the sisters of poor Molly Magia, along with Edna Hussman and Catherine Schaub. And the press just ate it up. After all, they were the women who were doomed to die. And though the USRC's lawyers did everything they could to discredit these women, their story turns the tide of public opinion against radium. In 1928, the Woman's Journal magazine wrote, quote, Seldom have we had so flagrant an instance of the heartlessness of a great corporation. It proves again that while 99 employers may provide the best of care for those who labor for them, the public must safeguard the weak and helpless who are at the mercy of the hundredth master, not alone by wider education about industrial hazards, but by the most careful and stringent laws. End quote. Well, yeah, I agree that companies should abide by laws to keep their employees safe. And that was a huge thing in the 1920s. This is the age of labor laws, right? And the radium girls were a huge part of that. As word got out about the dangers of radium, the industry started to collapse. In the 1930s, the FDA came out and banned the commercial use of radium in products. In combination with other labor law movements, the legacy of the radium girls helped form labor safety laws and standards, more robust workers' comp laws, and even OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. For a while after this, radium-226, the most stable of the isotopes, was still used in medical procedures. Today, it's rarely used because of how radioactive it is. It is sometimes used in cases of inoperable prostate and breast cancers, in people who have high risk factors for other treatments and can't get surgery, but again, it's not super common. We know a lot more now about radioactivity and radiation, but for the radium girls who got jobs painting dials in World War I, ingesting radium, not knowing how dangerous it was, they were unfortunate and unknowing victims of radiation sickness in the years before the atomic age. But as a result, workplaces and labor practices have become significantly safer. Oh, and I hope you're proud of me, because there was absolutely no cannibalism in this one. Just necrosis. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. 
my name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of the Radium Girls. Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. If you liked the sciencey part of this one, then go listen to episode 9 on the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Be sure to follow my podcast, available wherever you listen, so you know when new episodes are dropped. Following the podcast also really helps grow the channel. So stay tuned to get a popular history of unpopular things.